0: Hey Joel, what's up, Tim? In the Terminator movies, Skynet decides within a nanosecond that humanity is better off being destroyed by nuclear weapons than, you know, being saved. Yeah. What do you think uh, pushed Skynet finally over the edge? Was it, you know, YouTube comments, mullets, Duckface face selfies, Justin Bieber, planking, the
1: mannequin challenge? Uh, Tim, I think you're being super critical.
0: Probably right. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and sometimes, most of the time, nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. There are a lot of pop culture and movie podcasts out there, but this is probably the only one that I've heard of anyways, where we have a team of experts watching movies about nuclear weapons and then proceeding to needlessly overthink it. As always, you can listen to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and YouTube. We're also on Stitcher Radio, Tune in. Basically, anywhere you listen to podcasts, we'll find you. I'm Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies and thinks about nuclear weapons and nuclear policy for a living. And despite what you uh, may think, this information is not much of a conversation starter at parties. Fortunately, my co-host Joel is always there to lend me a supportive ear.
1: This is Joel. Uh, I minored in time travel rules (laughs) for about two semesters in college. And then I realized that was going to be problematic for my long term career prospects unless I could go back in time and change it. Uh, Fortunately, I was. So I was able to change careers. But that makes me eminently qualified to be on this podcast. So good to be with you, Tim.
0: Great. And we also have our friend Alex here, uh, who we, uh, Joel, you went to college with, and we, we figured, who, who are we going to have to come on to to watch five movies and talk about them? Uh, our, our friend Alex, he you know, usually can, can work through all the continuity of these nonsense movies.
2: Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Love the Terminator franchise, uh, so I'm very excited to dive into this conversation.
0: Well, great. Uh, it's very, We're very ambitious today. We committed ourselves to watching the entire catalog of the time-traveling, cyborg-battling, nuclear holocaust-filled, Terminator franchise now as the movie poster in Terminator one tried to warn us before we started this podcast the thing that won't die in the nightmare that won't end which is how I felt finally finishing the fifth movie in our scope today five movies Terminator from 1984 Terminator 2 Judgment Day from 91 Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines from 2003 Terminator Salvation from 2009 and then just last year Terminator Genesis. Not included, so don't get your hopes up if you're a big fan of the Sarah Connor Chronicles from 2008-2009 on TV. We're not talking about the comic books, including the Robocop vs. Terminator or the Superman vs. Terminator comics, nor the novels or the video games. Got to really focus on something, have to narrow it down, so let's talk about the movies. We've already done one James Cameron movie, True Lies, so let's... So James Cameron did the first two. Uh, Directed Uh, It was just kind of his baby And then later on uh, Jonathan Mostow Did Terminator 3 You can remember him from U571 And Surrogates And a few other things And then the uh, Mick G Who did uh, Terminator Salvation Also did Charlie's Angels Those Charlie Angels movies Uh, He took over uh, for that one. And then Alan Taylor, who I know from a lot of stuff like Game of Thrones and Deadwood, Westwood, and a lot of other HBO shows, seemed like he did the the last one. But really, the first two are the ones written by James Cameron and and his wife. That's their imprint on it. So everything else after Terminator 2, you really can't uh, blame on on James Cameron.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the franchise overall, especially the the first two, and I, I imagine this is probably the case with everyone else. Alex, let me know. But I think it was the first two that really are imprinted in my movie culture. Well, yeah, DNA. and I, I saw
2: the second one first. Uh, for whatever As reason, did I? Meant, you know, hmm. Yeah, nineteen eighty-four. It would have made sense, but so ninety-one. I remember seeing T. Two, and then I don't think I saw the first one till like recently. Right, yeah. and then you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. now that makes sense. Yeah,
1: uh, if only we had a time machine. Yeah. You know? Uh, I remember T2 was actually the first, as far as I can tell, the first R-rated movie that was playing that I saw. And I go, oh, this is an R-rated movie. I'm probably not supposed to be watching this. (laughs) Yeah. But I did. It was was playing at a friend's house, and it was like mid-movie or whatever. So I was even more confused, because I wasn't watching it from the beginning. All of a sudden, I see this guy in leather running around shooting this cop, all the silver blood or something. And I was like, what is going on here? So... Uh, it's good to be able to kind of come full circle and, you know, turn childhood memories into a, a very serious academic discussion yeah. here.
2: Well, it was also, sorry, but it was also, like, at least for me, first awareness of Arnold Schwarzenegger and, like, mm. his whole thing, you know, his whole persona or whatever. You, were, when you I weren't still you were think, much of a Conan fan as a young right, man? Right, right. Like, again, you know, wasn't aware really of that at all. T2, seeing him with the glasses and, like, on the motorcycle, flipping the shotgun and shooting stuff—that's still my image of Arnold.
0: So, before we get into this cast list, I want to make sure we all or everyone listening is aware: we pretty much spoil the movies. Uh, Terminator One, all the way to Terminator Five. If you haven't seen these movies yet, uh, we apologize, but we're, we need to get—you know—if we want to get super critical about it, we got to we got to talk about it in detail. Arnold was the big star for a lot of these, but it was a pretty big cast, especially if we're talking all five movies. I've kind of tried to quickly, so everyone's on the same page that's listening. I've broken it down by the, the huge cast playing a lot of the same characters. So we've got one category. We've got the good Terminator. So Arnold does that in T2, T3, uh, in Terminator Genesis, And then Sam Worthington, I guess, is also a kind of a good Terminator in, in Terminator Salvation. So we also have Sarah Connor, uh, the, the 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 heroine of the movies, uh, who plays the the mother of John Connor, the resistance leader later on. But she's played by Linda Hamilton in uh, Terminator One and Terminator Two, but later by uh, Daenerys Stormborn herself, uh, Emilia Clarke, in Terminator Genesis. Then you've got Kyle Reese. A bunch of people played him. You got Michael Bean in two, Terminator One, Anton Yelchin uh, in Terminator Salvation, Jai Courtney in Terminator Genesis. Then you've got John Connor. Now, a lot of people will play John Connor in the movies. Edward Furlong plays him first in Terminator 2 because uh, he was just a twinkle in, in Sarah Connor's eye in Terminator 1. Nick Stahl takes over in Terminator 3. Then he doesn't decide, that's it for me. Kristen Bale comes up in Terminator Salvation. He has his run with it. Then in Terminator Genesis, you have Jason Clark, I guess he's unrelated to Amelia Clark but then you have a bunch of other kind of random cameos of people that they little flashbacks here and there. so a lot of people played John Connor. It seems like Law and Order is one of those shows in New York every pretty every actor pretty much goes through and plays at some point seems like pretty much everybody's also gone through and played John Connor at some point in their career
1: yeah I, I can't think of a character in a franchise that has had more volatility in terms of just actors I mean if you look at if you put them up against each other. And you just look at their face, you know, Christian Mm -hmm. Bale to Edward Furlong. I mean, I was like, it just doesn't make sense. And I know that, you know, you just got to play along. They're different characters, obviously. But I couldn't think of a more a bigger artistic departure as far as the, the way they're presented. In one movie, they're kind of like a big, gruff military guy, and then another one, it's like, um eh, I'm just kind of a measly kind of guy. I don't know. It you wouldn't just not you
0: wouldn't, you wouldn't put them all in the same police lineup. You'd be able to figure out these are different people. Uh, and then we got our great litany of bad guy Terminators. So you have Arnold in uh, the T1. Robert Patrick plays the T1000 in Terminator 2. Christina Loken plays the TX in Terminator 3. Myung Hong Lee also plays the T1000 kind of hybrid thing in Terminator Genesis. And then Matt Smith from Doctor Who fame plays another Terminator bad person in uh, Terminator Genesis. And then you also have Kate Brewster, who I guess is uh, John Connor's wife, played by Claire Danes and uh, Bryce Dallas Howard in T3 and TS, uh, respectively. So quite a big cast. You have a bunch of cameos from fun guys. You have like Lance Hendrickson, Bill Paxton. Uh, in Bill Paxton's one of his best roles, Helen Bonham Carter, Michael Ironside has a great character role in uh, Terminator Salvation, even Terry Crews and S. Patrick Merkinson drop by J.K. Simmons. And, but most importantly, Danny Cooksey, who plays Buttnick from Nickelodeon Salute Your Shorts in Terminator 2. Really the, the, the highlight of that film for me. Um but that that's that's a, long, a big pretty big cast but let's talk about kind of how these movies are received before we get into the plot details of them you can see on, on the rotten tomato scores uh drop uh, pretty much for each of the movies uh from T1 and 100% rating everybody pretty much likes it T2 93% still not not, not too bad Terminator 3 uh 70% that's still passing grade in college then you get to Terminator Salvation and Terminator Genesis. You got 33% and 25%. See the, the the wearing thin of at least critical response to these films. You can kind of see the same thing in, in the box office. T1 and T2, big jump. Uh, T1 was actually a pretty big deal because it was made on a pretty small budget on only like $6 million and then ended up making uh, $80 million worldwide. So you can get a sense of, wow, this is a great film. A bunch of money then gets put into the next one and well, you can kind of get the numbers for yourself, but it, you can see the movie's doing really well, T1, T2. And then ever since then, it's more relied on its worldwide audience, but overall hasn't done so well. That's kind of why you have these new films and Terminator 3, 4, 5, each of like different production companies buying the rights, trying to start a new franchise, and they're not working. Which might explain a little bit why these
2: movies are confusing when you put them all together. Well, and why we'll inevitably have more, right? Yep. I and mean, as long as Arnold Schwarzenegger's alive... And, and, we, a, and can, we can fit him into the plot somehow. And not a political leader. Right.
1: Actually, I don't think he has to be alive. I think they've done a pretty good job that's, recreating him, <laughs> That's they? true. So, that's very true. Know, who knows?
2: They have enough B-roll where they can just cobble together another film. We could also
0: probably cover Aliens and The Abyss. That both have a lot of nuclear topics. Seems to be right on top of his mind. I'm not surprised he didn't have the Titanic sink by a nuclear explosion or anything. He seems to be so concerned by it. Let's get into the plot uh, elements of this because it seems the the first two movies were definitely good enough that the Library of Congress has preserved it in the National Film Registry because it considers it culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. If it's good enough for the Library of Congress, it's good enough for this podcast. I'll let Joel lead through the, the plot discussion, but the opening text... in in Terminator 1 really lets you uh, set the picture of what we have uh, for the film. It says, Los Angeles, 2029 A.D. The machines rose from the ashes of nuclear fire. Their war to exterminate mankind had raged for decades. But the final battle will not be fought in the future. It will be fought here in our present, tonight. Joel help us make sense of the film. we kind of go through them film by film and we'll talk about some of the nuclear topics in there because this is really one of those film series where where nuclear weapons and time travel are a real big part of the plot.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to try to do this, but you guys are going to have to break in as I, as I work through it because obviously it's all cut up with time travel. So, uh, trying to do it linearly is, is a little difficult. So as Tim mentioned, the beginning of the first movie begins in 1984, uh, What we learn is that uh, robots in the future are fighting with this ragtag group of humans Mm -hmm. in the late 2020s. The humans have been able to successfully stop the robots, but in a last ditch effort, the robots apparently have time travel technology. Mm -hmm. Of course. And it's only at the end of the battle that they send a lone robot known as a Terminator that's made to look human to go back and murder the mother of the leader of the human survivors that ultimately triumph over the robots. So that's how you see the flashback to 1984 where you have Arnold Schwarzenegger originally as a bad Terminator um, in the future to become a, a good Terminator to try to hunt down Uh, Linda Hamilton's character, Sarah Connor, when she's, I guess, an early Mm 20-something. I don't think they ever give her a specific age. In order to stop that, however, the humans in the future, and again, sorry if this gets crazy complicated, sends back a lone soldier, Kyle Reese, who then proceeds to make contact with Sarah Connor and try to basically get ahead of the Terminator, educate her on what's going on, and protect her. Kyle
0: Reese is from the future, so he probably brought back like a lot of really fancy weapons, lasers, all that cool stuff we see at
1: the beginning, right? So this seems like
0: it's a pretty, pretty easy uh, situation for him, right?
1: Well, unfortunately, the only thing that can go back in time through the machine is living tissue. So you actually see both the Terminator and Kyle Reese's character come back completely naked. As we find out in a later movie, it's like metal in a microwave times a million, mm-hmm. I think was the uh, the phrase they used. So... You know, I'm, I'm, that seems reasonable to me. You can't have metal in time travel technology because there's
2: just... a lot of electricity shooting around. I mean, that's it, true. It's... This is one of the more plausible points, I think, of the plot. Right? Yeah. I mean, they
1: really thought this through. Yeah. You know, they whiteboarded it for. A couple I think weeks. so. Yeah. You know, like I was heating up some popcorn. And I was like, wait, you know what? Right, right. It's like the kernels. So the funny thing that happens though is Kyle Reese, Sarah Connor, while they're running from the Terminator, they fall in love have kind of a passionate uh, night together. And what we find out is that Sarah Connor ends up becoming pregnant. And then you find out that it's actually the kid that she has with Kyle Reese is the guy that would one day end up becoming the leader of the resistance, John Connor. So you already had that first instance of someone in the future traveling back in time to the past to then cause a future-related incident or occurrence i already got the headache it's already here yeah. but i think one thing we'll
0: mention too is that this, this concept of judgment day which is the day that the this, this robot basically humans invent artificial intelligence which is skynet the robot machine that we fight later on and as soon as they in, invent this artificial intelligence it sounds like a pretty cool thing um you know everyone thinks oh, oh artificial intelligence like like scarlett johansson and her you know it's something that's going to be very helpful don't don't have to worry about it too much But it becomes self-aware. We realize, oh, shoot, we try to unplug it. It realizes that humanity is its biggest threat. Unfortunately, we've also connected this artificial intelligence to all of our nuclear weapon delivery systems. And it fires everything up that it possibly can towards Russia, knowing Russia will fire it back at us. And that's that kind of judgment day that we have. I think in the first movie, which takes place in 84, it's supposed to happen in 97. Um, so in 1997 in the first movie, uh, that's when the world ends. And that's where we, we later of all of our people fighting uh, later on. So that's kind of like the the thing that they're trying to not necessarily prevent in the first movie. There's no sense of trying to prevent nuclear war in the first one. It's just to save John Sarah Connor's Connor, existence right? yeah. and Sarah Connor so that after it happens, we can go ahead and, and fight it. Um, but that, you know, I think the movie ends, right, with uh, Sarah Connor and Kyle Reese successfully killing the Terminator, allowing her to survive. Kyle Reese, unfortunately, uh, doesn't make it, sacrifices himself, but it seems like a pretty good trip through time. He completed his mission, and then Sarah Connor is able to, uh, later on, give birth to John. Um, she knows something's gonna happen, and she gets, tries to prepare John
1: for the future. Uh, so what happens then? Does John have a happy childhood until then? Uh, unfortunately, no. She's a, a little crazy, because you know she thinks that the world's gonna end in a, in a couple years. So what you have is Sarah Connor training her son about weapons, military tactics, all sorts of uh, interesting stuff. She ends up eventually in a mental institution uh, And at the beginning of the second movie, T2. Uh, We see that the Skynet tries again. It sends a Terminator back to the later past, if that's the right phrase to use, to actually hunt down John Connor as a young kid. I think he's like in eighth grade, maybe something like that Uh, in the late 1990s, 1995. Sarah Connor is thinking the world's gonna end in two years. Uh, Human resistance sends back a good Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator at this point. I'm just gonna call him the good good Arnold. The good Arnold. The good Arnold, exactly. Uh, That sounds like a mid-90s sitcom, (laughs) good Arnold. Anyways, so then you have the good Arnold, John Connor as a kid and Linda Hamilton again as Sarah Connor racing against time to try to evade the the bad Terminator. In this case, played by Robert Patrick, who is this kind of shape-shifting uh, Terminator who can make blades with his hands and things like that.
0: Pretty cool effects. Um, I yeah. Know, like, a lot of that came from The Abyss yeah. uh, that James Cameron did previously in it. I think they wanted the T-1000 shape-shifting thing for the first movie. But they couldn't do it. But one of the things I like a lot about the Robert Patrick character is that he takes the form of a police officer, which is someone you would imagine to be uh, someone to protect you. But instead, it's the one chasing after you and all that. I I find that to be quite a contrast. Remember, as a kid, T2 was one of the first movies that I saw that was a crazy action, a real big action movie. And the fact that a Bad person has taken a shape of a police officer it was very jarring.
1: Hmm. Well, especially because the good Arnold is dressed like a Hell's Angel, riding around he on a seems motorcycle. He kind of sketchy, yeah. but the police officer is the one who's uh, who's kind of crazy.
0: I'll say this real quickly: that that reveal was fun because when my wife and I recently rewatched these films, she knew Arnold was in it, but didn't know that he in T two becomes a good guy. That reveal was fascinating because even though she's in her 30s, she never made it through seeing Terminator when he was revealed to be a good guy. And that the other one was the bad guy. Fine blown. And I got to enjoy that for the first time. That was pretty cool.
2: That's interesting. I don't remember having seen T2 first. And so then having to adjust going back to the T1, that, oh, now yeah. Arnold's the bad guy. That was my timeline. Yeah.
1: It's like watching the second, it's like watching Empire Strikes Back. Right, right. Going back, oh, yeah, this is how it worked. So okay. I, I,
2: I guess I'm just not remembering clearly. In T2, was there a moment in the beginning of the film where yep. it, you thought that Arnold Schwarzenegger was again. Yep. A bad guy. Anyway. Yeah, so
1: the, there's the point where Sarah Connor's broken out of the her cell at the mental institution Yeah, and she's running and uh, she's locked the, the custodians behind some gate or whatever. So right. she thinks she's home free. So she's like running and then she turns a corner and then they go into their classic slow-mo where she turns a corner she's and the him. elevator opens and he literally walks through the elevator, again in all leather garb. So yeah. it's very reminiscent going back, you know, 20 years or 10 years at that point. And then you see her kind of like totally fall back, totally like, oh, no, this is him. And then you have John Connor who runs out behind him and says, no, no, he's okay, He's okay." Mm. And she's freaked out. But she's looking at her kid. She's like, wait, why wouldn't he have killed you? Gotcha. And then even before that, though, like when
0: John Connor first meets both Terminators at the exact same time, you really don't know which one's the good guy and which one's the bad guy until Arnold says, you know, get down. And then he starts shooting the bad Terminator guy. And you find out that he's... With the box of roses,
2: right? Pulls out the shotgun, yeah. Guns and roses.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 right? yeah. It's, it's right on the nose there.
1: <laughs> so, and Tim, I, I thought made the astute point that the the first movie really focused on a small-scale storyline where... And I think this is why T1 was so good is because they kind of were able to frame the scope of the conflict where it was just trying to survive, outrun this one Terminator. They weren't even trying to kill the Terminator. they was mm-hmm. just like, run. T2, you start to see them take on more world time-changing dynamics where at first Sarah Connor wants to go kill the head of the software company who she understands to be right. creating Skynet in its early days. Uh, it's a company called Cyberdyne. When she tries to kill him, they... John Connor ends up stopping her saying you can't kill him. He doesn't know what he's going to do. But in doing so, they end up educating the head of Cyberdyne, Mr. Dyson. Mm -hmm. I think it's Miles Dyson. It's a good name for a software engineer. That, you know, here's what he's going to do. And so what they end up doing is actually blowing up the Cyberdyne uh, software uh, company. And interestingly enough, the way they're working on the Skynet system is because they were able to recover from the T1 movie – the partial hand of the first terminator mm-hmm. and part of the cpu of the Termin- terminator so you remember in the first movie it was destroyed by being pressed in some kind of industrial press yeah thing. uh so they are able to recover the equipment so again number two of future technology going back in time and actually influencing what happens in the present so another paradox i guess
0: before all the they, they finally decide to go and, and take out dyson or When Sarah Connor does, she has this nightmare, which I'll get into more detail later on. She has this nightmare of basically Judgment Day, where she's with her young child. They're playing in a park outside of Los Angeles, and everything seems pretty nice. And then big flash, bomb goes off. uh, The entire city is destroyed, and it's this really graphic image of a nuclear bomb going off. And people literally catching on fire and being blown away. Uh, The first, I think, that I remember as a kid... The first image of nuclear weapons being used, the first real one that I saw in a film. Uh, So it really sticks with me. And I have some more to talk about that a little later on. But I remember that was, for T2, that's the real highlight uh, in terms of the big nuke stuff.
2: Well, am I remembering correctly, too, that it was also incredibly graphic that it was like blowing off the skin and like exposing skeletons and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's like uh, a horror element.
1: You see Sarah Connor, she's, because she's on the chain fence, fence, yeah. Yeah, and she's trying to warn uh, herself, actually. She realizes she's trying to warn herself. The people playing in the park. Yeah. So she's got her hands on the chain link fence. The bomb goes off and then her hands, I guess, are fused to the fence. And then you see like her skin kind of melting off and then you see just the skeleton. And, you know, as far as movie magic goes, it's pretty uh, compelling. End of Terminator 2. They beat the, the liquid
0: robot uh, Terminator T-1000. T- and But Arnold decides, you know, so that they don't have this robot part still to, for someone else to make it the next Terminator, he self destructs melts himself and uh this this very cool scene where he as he 's floating down on this chain sticks his thumbs up and yeah. gives a thumbs up because you know in, in t2 he 's a learning machine he becomes more human than some of these other people uh, in in the film itself so I, I always love that that particular scene um, but the movie ends uh, you know with a positive uh, image you think it's done there's an alternate ending to this movie, like that they didn't decide to use, but it shows Sarah Connor as like an old woman, um, talking in Washington D.C., walking around saying, "My son John ended up being a senator." I'll show, I'll show Joel's like his eyes are lighting up,
2: but this is a real deleted scene. August twenty nineteen ninety seven came and went. Nothing much happened. Michael Jackson turned forty there was no judgment day. I wanted to run through the street yelling to grab them all and say, every day from this day on is a gift. Use it well. That was 30 years ago. John fights the war differently than it was foretold. Here, on the battlefield of the Senate,
0: his weapons are common sense and hope.
2: The luxury of hope was given to me by the Terminator. Because if a machine can learn the value of human life,
1: maybe we can too. Oh, okay, deleted scene. Okay, because, I mean, the movie, from what I remember, it's somewhat positive, but it, it ends with, like, you know, you see the... Uh, they're driving down a street, and you know uh, Linda Hamilton's voice comes over, and he's like, "For the first time, I don't know what's ahead of us, but there's hope for the future." But I, please explain this deleted scene because
0: well, the deleted scene is, is kind of what the initial thought, what they were going to do, uh, what what they were going to do, but it looks really hokey because the makeup doesn't really work all that well, and you know it's it's a deleted scene, so it's not canon. But I mean, I my guess not is canon. that James Cameron really thought that at the end of this movie. Um, the nuclear war was averted. Uh-huh. There wasn't any plans to make another one. It seems like yeah. maybe maybe there was, but like it was done. So in in a way, it's like T1, T2. That's the story. Hmm. So it it ends on a very positive note that people can stop nuclear weapons, but from 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 causing a war. The way Hollywood works, James Cameron wasn't you know directing or writing T3, but the 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 mechanisms happened and it and it happened again. The
1: machinery. So. <laughs> yeah. It won't let them stop making movies. Right. The machines.
0: <laughs> Terminator 1, 1984. Terminator 2, 91. Terminator 3, like 2003. Genesis, it's sometimes like 2015. So over four decades, Mm -hmm. one time a decade, Arnold Schwarzenegger comes out of his hole and looks and sees a shadow and decides (laughs) to make a Terminator movie. So if 2020 comes around, we're going to be ready for another one. It's pretty exciting. This is amazing that over, over this long of time, once per decade... This movie, these movies come about, uh, I I think that that's really cool. I can't think of another example. Um, You know, Star Wars movies, I guess, kind of, you know, once per, once per generation. Yeah, yeah. It works pretty well.
1: All right. So moving on to the next movie, we have Terminator 3. Happens in uh, 2003. This is where you actually see the epic takeover of Skynet. And I'm probably going to breeze through this one a little bit um, because it's not as good. So, we can still talk about it, uh, plotline wise, but you know, I'm not going to be too, yeah, I'm not going to dwell on it. So basically, and for reasons I still don't truly understand, but I think we have some discussion on this later, uh, in our, in our notes, you fast forward to the the early two thousands where you have John Connor, who is kind of, uh, guilty about the fact that he believes that judgment day has been averted. So he's like trying to figure out what to do with himself. Uh, You learn that uh, his mother has since uh, died, and so he's kind of on his own. He's a loner. He's just kind of moving from place to place. Uh, Hasn't really, like, put down roots anywhere. Mm -hmm. Off the the grid. He's off the grid, Mm -hmm. exactly. You see that they, again, probably the robots from the future, have sent another Terminator back in time. Now it's a female Terminator uh, known as, I believe it's a Terminatrix, which they call a TX, and you don't really understand at first, but you see the Terminator driving around to random places like a, a like a McDonald's drive-through, and apparently she has a list of people that she confirms their identity, and then she just shoots them down. Much That's like right, because the they're like
2: officers in John Connor's future army or something like that, right? right? Yeah. But it wasn't a
0: McDonald's; it was it was a Jim's Burgers, which is uh, in Los Angeles, it's like a Los Angeles chain. I've been to, I've been to a few of these, and it's it's a cool imagery because. Jim's Burgers has these gigantic signs that say, you can get tacos, you can get um, fries, you can get burgers, you can get basically anything you want, like basically Mexican food and, bur- and yeah. burgers in the same place. But each of the signs look a little different. They're all very retro. Some of them have these weird um, spherical shaped things on the top of them. But this one particular one has an atomic symbol right mm. on the top. And then they added, I guess that's the one they decided to do for it. So they, they put a bunch of other atom things uh, the director did in the background and stuff. I just thought that was kind of cool. Um, yeah. It's really laying the atomic imagery pretty thick for these movies. But I've been to that location. That, that sign is still there with the atomic symbol,
1: but not anything else. So they've gotten rid of that part. But that, that's actually a good segue into uh, T3 even happening in California because... There was discussion, I remember at one point, if I'm remembering my my timeline uh, in the real world, not in the movies, uh, there was a debate over whether to film in California, and this was around the time that uh, Schwarzenegger was going to be running for governor, Uh. and so he put up, as far as I can tell from what I remember, a big fight to keep the movie being shot in California. Because it would look bad if he went to like New Mexico. Yeah, just kind of like, you know, bringing yeah. – Because California played very prominently in the franchise and stuff. So I thought that was – that's actually an interesting anecdote. Huh. Yeah, I shouldn't have just generalized McDonald's. But uh. So y- you fast forward. So John Connor at this point, I should say, he's kind of like in his maybe late 20s, early 30s, like 29, 30s, something like that. Um, for various reasons, he gets in a, a motorcycle accident. He breaks into veterinarian. A veterinarian. Uh, clinic, which just happens to be run by this uh, woman, Catherine Brewster or Kate Brewster, played by Claire Danes, who he realizes he went to, I think it was middle school with way back in the day. Mm. And they recount this story of how they had uh, made out in some guy's basement <laughs> when they were like in seventh grade or something like that.
0: So the theory is,
1: is it was the day they made out the day before John
0: Connor gets attacked by the Terminator and Terminator 2. When when they're there at the arcade and and Butnick gets uh, interrogated by the poli- the T one thousand cop guy, he says, "Oh no, he's over there," and all that kind of stuff. At the beginning of it, you see a red haired little girl say, oh, "Oh, I think that I think John Connor's at the arcade." It's because probably when they were making out last night, he said, "All right, this has been fun. I'll see you tomorrow at the arcade," and that's where he ends up going. <laughs> Everything. That's the theory. That's the fan theory. But I think it's kind of been
1: confirmed somewhat. I don't know. But is it canon, Tim? Is it canon? Somewhere
2: deep on Reddit. It's not, yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) All right, so... Her dad. Well, yeah, so the the dad is important. So they they make a connection. It's at that point that the two of them are attacked by uh, the TX, the female uh, Terminator. And then it's at that point where you see, again, a good Arnold Terminator, the good Arnold, uh, save both of them and run away. And you learn that uh, Kate Brewster's dad is a high-ranking – I think it's a three-star general in the Mm -hmm. Air Force, at least as I was reading his uniform properly, who apparently seems to be working on very futuristic weapons. If you look in the background, you see some drone technology, which looks pretty similar to the futuristic Skynet um, flying Mm. drone ships that the humans are fighting in 2029. So you start to see the the direct connection between Kate Brewster's dad and what will eventually become Skynet. In parallel with that human storyline, you hear in the background through various TVs and news reports that there's a giant virus, uh, not a physical virus, but a computer virus that's ravaging computer networks around the world and governments are trying to contain the virus. So as we learn in that movie, uh, Kate Brewster ends up supposedly being John Connor's wife, uh, that they're the couple that leads the resistance. Uh, All the while, John Connor is freaked out that Judgment Day is still apparently happening because he said it should have happened uh, seven years ago because it's Mm. 2004. Good Arnold explains that they have merely delayed Judgment Day, but it is going to happen uh, in a couple hours. So John Connor says, no, we've got to stop Judgment Day from happening. Uh, they're able to convince Kate Brewster that she's not crazy, that there are real robots, uh, and they're trying to kill everyone. They're racing to uh, their father's base, but in the meantime, uh, the government has become so stressed out about the computer virus that they think that the autonomous artificial intelligence that Kate Brewster's dad is developing will be the answer to eradicating the virus. And so they order him to upload this Skynet AI into the military servers across the country, across the world in order to find the virus and eradicate it. And they think it will happen in a matter of seconds if not minutes. Despite the apprehension of Kate Brewster's dad because he thinks it's a bad idea because the AI is unproven at this point, he still uploads it. And at first they think it solved the problem only to find out, no, everything gets shut down. And at that same moment when they're trying to figure out what's happened with the computer virus and Skynet, we see the TX show up, uh, start to essentially uh, automate or kickstart all these robots and drone ships to start attacking humans. And then all of a sudden they realize that uh, what they've done uh, was a horrible, bad idea. So in the shootout, uh, Kate Brewster's father gets shot and killed, but not before warning John Connor and Kate Brewster to go to Crystal Peak. which. John Connor believes is the core of the Skynet AI. And if they can just destroy that or shut it down, they might be able to stop the nuclear attack. Uh, They get chased to Crystal Peak by the TX. Uh, They get into what looks like a bunker, uh, like a fallout shelter, uh, only to find out that the technology there is really old technology from like the 1960s, 1970s. Hmm. And then they realize that This was just Kate Brewster's dad's way of protecting his daughter by getting her to a bunker, realizing that there's likely to be a massive nuclear fallout. And at the end of the movie, ending on a high note, of course, with fireworks, they end with actual Judgment Day happening where you see dozens of nuclear bombs going off, destroying the world. Uh, But John Connor ends the movie saying, you know, the war has just begun.
2: Hmm.
0: So that brings us to Terminator Salvation, and I didn't uh, force any of my co-hosts here to also watch that movie, so I'll run through that one pretty quickly, because it's not really about uh, time travel or nuclear weapons, but it continues the story. It takes up uh, really later a little couple years later on i think it's like 2017 2018 and in that situation you, you see john connor he's a big you know big deal but he's not the leader of the resistance he goes to try to find this one computer cache location out in the middle of this desert with like dozens and dozens of uh, radar satellites and they, they find out that they've been doing skynet has been doing experiments on humans All of a sudden, they find out they're about to be attacked. Uh, John Connor gets in a helicopter, flies away, and Skynet, I guess, still has some of these nukes left over and nukes this whole area, which I can't tell if it's like a big nuclear bomb or like a mini-nuke tactical uh, nuclear weapon, but that causes his helicopter to crash. He crashes um, really kind of okay. He's in this exposed helicopter, which appears to be... Five hundred feet from where the nuclear bomb goes off, but he's fine. Helicopter lands upside down. Apparently, there's no prompt radiation.
1: Maybe he had a refrigerator.
0: He could have been landing <laughs> those those helicopter refrigerators. You got to keep the beer cool on your on your helicopter. So he must have jumped inside of that. But that's kind of like the big nuclear imagery you see in, in that movie. Except also the the resistance headquarters. It's, this is actually pretty cool. This movie, it's, it's the plot's not very good, but it's got some real fun imagery to it. The military resistance headquarters. Is they're inside of a nuclear submarine, mm. so that's why Skynet can't find them because much like how nuclear ballistic missile submarines are, they're the key to the U.S. and the other countries that have them: China, India, Russia, U.S. and, and France. Like these are really important second strike survivability weapons because we don't know you don't know where the other countries' weapons are on the submarines because they're out in the middle of the ocean under underwater. So you you. can't be sure to get them so then you don't fire your weapons at the other country trying to hit all of theirs first before they can get you it's so these submarines you don't know where they are Mm. um so it's kind of cool that they've applied that logic to the this war against the machines that the machines as advanced as they are don't know where the leaders of the resistance are Mm. kind of until later on when they're putting out this signal which the resistance thinks will shut down the machines turns out it's just like a tracking device and the submarine blows up but it's a cool mm. application of, of, of nuclear weapons and, and nuclear technology and then later on you find out that John Connor's side of the base John Connor and Kate Brewster who's pregnant now with with her kids that they, I guess will also lead the resistance later on there it appears to be at an ICBM silo base somewhere like that's where their headquarters are at so a lot of these things kept getting applied but really Terminator Salvation it's all about John Connor rising up the ranks uh, ultimately at the end of the movie he uh, becomes the leader of the resistance there's some nonsense about uh, an, another kind of human who gets turned into a, a terminator mm. instead of a terminator to look like a human mm. and he tricks john connor into coming to skynet headquarters thinking that they can destroy everything but the skynet's already on top of it but the cool scene at the end of that is uh arnold Schwarzenegger didn't do the movie. I think he was governor at the time. Right. So they do this fun um because Joel and I saw this movie together in 2009. They they do this CGI application of Arnold's face onto this body builder who's also Arnold's stand in for a lot of movies. And then they have this fight which looks like mega Arnold because uh, he's bigger than than Arnold uh, in the other movies. That I thought that scene was pretty cool. But ultimately, everything gets defeated. And you don't really know what's going to happen next, but because uh, it seems like you have to keep fighting Skynet, they're not there yet, but they're going to move forward uh, on with that. So that's kind of Terminator Salvation. But um, Terminator Genesis, we had Alex handle. So, Alex, why don't you run through uh, Terminator Genesis for us so we don't have to think about it again?
2: Oh, <laughs> and- yeah, to the extent that I could follow it, um, basically what I could gather is it kind of. Goes back to the opening scenes of T one, where they're sending Kyle Reese back in time to uh, protect Sarah Connor, but for reasons I'm not entirely clear on, the like timeline. You know, all, all these franchises are doing this like new timeline thing. Terminator was not spared that. Um, right. I think Star Trek did it. Star Trek. Um, the X Men movies, yeah, movies. Yeah, the X Men movies did it with the uh, Days of Future Past. Yeah. So, so we're doing this with, with Terminator as well. Um, basically, Sarah Connor already kind of knows about the future machines and everything because when she was very young, there was Arnold. the good Arnold was sent back to protect her from another plot that's only kind of referenced. Kyle Reese gets back and basically they team up with uh, the good Arnold and now a uh, you know badass Sarah Connor. Something about Judgment Day being delayed, which I also wasn't too terribly clear on. So now it's going to 2017. Uh, that's when the new Judgment Day is going to happen. People time travel again from <laughs> 1997 to 2017. For the, for right. the first,
0: in the first movie, time travel was was something that the robots could do one time. Yeah. And that was it. And the humans could had, had enough for one time. And that was it before the the machine didn't work anymore. And then by Genesis, it's just eh, you know you build, time you build a time travel machine, you just got to pull together. You know, got to MacGyver yourself and, uh, with some paper clips and some rubber bands. Well, it's
1: like the iPhone seven or whatever. It's like yeah, you know we, yeah we're, we we you know the technology is good these days. Yeah. Well, so. well, speaking
0: of the iPhone, the new yes.
1: kind of Skynet thing
0: appears to not be a military application. There are military applications, but it's. It's like a Siri, uh, Google. That's now what I thought was interesting. Kind of thing. Yeah, it's like an operating system that everyone's really excited for. It's everyone's like lining up outside the Apple store waiting for their new uh, device and operating system to come out? But it's right. just
2: it's this new like Google Cloud thing, you right. know, called Genesis that like a billion people have pre-ordered and it's going to go online, you know, in twenty four hours or something like that from you know when when the story's going on. I thought that was an interesting turn because it wasn't, you know, the earlier movies were talking about obviously the threat of nuclear war, maybe the threat of artificial intelligence. In this movie, it was, you know, it's an iPhone app that's going to take us all down. Hmm. And I thought that was just very much a sign of the times. It, it was a cool little plot device.
0: End of the war? We've got an app for that. <laughs> right,
2: right.
1: Now, was that developed by the military? Or well, that that's it the changes thing. the entire... Uh, genesis of skynet
2: again they it seems like an important plot point they kind of just reference they there's like a news story in the background somewhere about genesis uh shady origins and like how it's probably a partnership between this like again google-like company and the air force or something like that
0: and another example of what Joel was saying of time travel from the future influencing things in the past. So, right before, at some point, John Connor, right before they're about to send Kyle Reeves back, Skynet knows that yeah. their attack's about to happen. So, they turn John Connor in a surprise trap into a robot, like T3000, yes. which is some kind of nanotechnology, something or another. Uh, and then they send him back into the past and he helps build genesis right later on so right. he was the help to create genesis itself right something along those lines by this character by uh, the, by skynet who now because at the end of the beginning of, of, of genesis skynet gets destroyed right but i guess they a little bit of it was captured inside of this matt smith character who's t5000 so mm-hmm. you got we oh, get a t800 slash t101 then you got a t850 and a T-1000, then you've got the T three thousand, then a five thousand, and a TX, and really it's it's kinda of hard to keep track of all these things. They're like models of cars that come out every couple of years and you can't really
2: figure it out. It was it was it was very confusing. I mean, I, I think T Two, I think, has like the strongest we're all gonna nuke ourselves and we mm-hmm. have to stop judgment day. You know, as you go into T three, salvation, and then definitely Genesis, we're getting further and further away from like the the nuclear thing is just sort of vaguely in the background, right. and you it, see some cool imagery in the starts front of with, missiles Genesis starts with it, Yeah, so it, you know that's yeah. all neat, but like at, at, at the point of Genesis, if you're you know watching these movies for the nuclear weapons, uh, it's just you know in the distant background.
0: Well, that's that's great. That's a great segue into the discussion I want to start with on our nuclear point. So, if anyone is still listening after that nonsensical <laughs> description of, of the Terminator franchise. I find it fascinating to do, do an overview look at, at the at the franchise, mostly because these movies, each one, which is, you know, every 10 years, reflects what the public kind of perceives in terms of their anxieties at mm-hmm. that time. Mm-hmm. So the first movie comes out in 1984, right in the middle of the really harsh parts of the Cold War and anxieties that uh, between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, there was a pretty strong perception that nuclear war was simply inevitability it wasn't a matter of of if but when yeah in that movie it's not about trying to stop nuclear war right it's simply trying to survive it it's what what kind of tough mindset are we going to need the real strong leaders that we need to be able to get through the dark times ahead Mm. Mm -hmm. fast forward to 1991 yeah end of the cold war soviet union is, is more or less collapsed we're in this period now where Russia and the U.S. are friends. This movie comes out a couple weeks after George H.W. Bush and the Soviet leadership sign the, the START Treaty, the, the mm. Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. So at that time, Russia is kind of our friends. John Connor makes a reference to that uh, later on when, when the good Arnold says that we're going to start a war. Why would we start a war with, with Russia? They're our friends now. But there's a perception in T2 that we an uh, individual, whether it be Sarah Connor or right. Dyson, people working together— can stop nuclear war.
2: It's no longer inevitable. It can be stopped, yeah. There, there's more of a positive image to it. Yeah.
0: And I think that really reflects not only uh, the public's ch- perception of these things, but, but also James Cameron mm-hmm. and, and his kind of views on these things. So, And I, again, I'll, I'll argue that T2 ends in a very positive message, that they thought they stopped the war. Uh, but because the movies need to keep going, Terminator <laughs> 3 comes out uh, after 9-11, back to a time period where people's anxieties were a little bit uh still pretty concerned and and we're back to that pessimistic attitude it's not about nuclear war being can be stopped it's only a matter of delaying it mm-hmm. they delay it a little bit further on uh and it's still and eventually it happens and nothing really you can do about it i kind of an interesting uh take on all of this stuff so i i think this is really one of those things where uh it changed as they had to make the new movies and i don't know if this is necessarily was planned from the beginning but it really does reflect all those of those different anxieties and then like you said, in Terminator Genesis in 2015, it's no longer about just nuclear war. It's there in the beginning. It's it's going to happen, so that's kind of the part of it. But it, really, it's about cyber uh, anxieties, whether or not cyber warfare can take over our uh, our technologies. People can... Does, does,
2: our, does human um, kind of obsession with technology and right. our phones and stuff, is that a bad part for our society? It's more about technology. I mean, there's even a scene where before you know that... John Connor has become a robot and is now a bad guy. He like has a conversation with Kyle Reese and Sarah Connor about how like everyone in 2017 is always looking down at their iPads and their iPhones and stuff like that. So yeah, it's definitely shifted far away from the nuclear stuff, more on the threat of technology generally.
0: And you can see a little bit of this. So James Cameron in a 1985 interview says that uh, it's depressing when you watch the interviews with high school kids the day after the movie The Day After, which is that famous film um, about a nuclear bomb that goes off in the middle of the country out mm. in Kansas. And he says and that, that, that these high school kids have come to accept the inevitability of nuclear war. And in The Terminator, the first one, in fact, the, the fact of nuclear war is thrown away. It's with the complete understanding that people will buy it, mm-hmm. that it's just part of the fabric of the story, uh, which I think is a pretty fascinating thing. And I wonder if he... Kind of change that when you start to take um, when you start to look at Terminator 2, how they change uh, that that quite a bit. But I I think I think today uh, in our context here, we're just given a bit of a hook just to continue these conversations about Terminator. And it's not just nerds like us on, on podcasts, but it's even uh, pretty big military people and even in other countries. So, Russian Deputy Prime Minister Rogozin said in a meeting with students uh, at uh, Tomsk Polytechnic University a couple weeks ago. Yeah, he he had something to say about Terminator. He said, I quote, Let's consider the, the Hollywood movie The Terminator. Once humans realize that they are incapable of acting fast enough, they delegate the decision over launching a retaliatory strike to a machine, Skynet. A machine is a machine. Should we entrust one with such a sacred thing as the existence of humanity? I doubt that. He added that he is scared of putting a machine in charge of nuclear weapons. Hmm. So now, again, this is kind of in the context of NATO putting weapon systems close to Russian borders. So it might be a little bit of fun propaganda, but it, it is kind of fascinating that mm. that Terminator is such a big popular culture um, infusion of nuclear imagery and all that kind of stuff that it even reaches out to to the Russians as yeah. well. So yeah. that kind of sets the stage for the rest of our conversation that uh, what we say here is is certainly being con- considered and thought of uh, in other places, too. When anyone thinks about uh, Terminator, and we have conversations about this, people ask, I- "Is what happens with Skynet possible? Like, yeah. what is what is controlling our nuclear weapons these days? Can it be if you put artificial intelligence into these systems, what would actually happen?" Fun little trivia here: uh, the UK has a family of military satellites that they use for surveillance and and some other things that are called Skynet, uh, but it's completely unrelated. Yeah. It was it was came out in 1969. When That's it was what first. they want you to think, Tim. Oh. <laughs> right. It's not related. But we do—there are, there are some things in, in the U.S. arsenal that are kind of similar. So in the, in the movie, the, this Cyberdyne system creates what they call a neural net-based artificial intelligence system, hmm. which is used to automate defense programs, bringing in data from a bunch of different battlefield locations, and making really complex decisions very quickly about how to attack. And then they build this in the movie into the Cheyenne Mountain Complex near Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we talked about this a little bit when we did our War Games episode— because most of that, the end of war games, takes place, they call it NORAD. Yeah, yeah, They confuse NORAD's mission, which is mostly about monitoring things, mm-hmm. with the command and control, uh, actually firing weapons and all that stuff. Uh, but that's, a, we already had that conversation before. But Ch- the Cheyenne Mountain Complex is near uh, Peterson Air Force Base mm-hmm. and NORAD, where U.S. Northern Command uh, takes place. And it's where it really, that's where the U.S. nuclear arsenal is, is directed from. That's also where, you know, Strategic Command and, and all that. Uh, can, can can do does some of their operations. So Skynet's plan in, in T2 and T1 and all that is to first launch an attack against the Russians who will then respond with all of their weapons. So that's all considered to be, you know, launch on warning stuff, mutually assured destruction. Right. Uh, Skynet, you know, it's it's mutually assured destruction is called MAD for a reason. Skynet thinks it's a great idea. Yeah. Because it's the perfect way to, to get humans off their back.
2: Well, so that, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's yeah. an interesting... So, like, in the... The mad scenario where you know the U.S. and Russia, or the Soviet Union at the time, are just unloading everything they have at each other. Are they also destroying South America? I mean, I, probably Europe, Africa, India, like these other right. places? Or are they just shooting at each other? How, how does I that work? I think
0: there's, there's different war plans. And that gotcha. this has really changed over the course of uh, the history of U.S. nuclear weapons. At the beginning, all of our plans were to... Completely annihilate the Russians gotcha. and, 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 and Soviet military bases around the, yeah. the world. Not necessarily be like you know, let's also take out Australia, why not? <laughs> right, right. But it was it was all about destroying completely the military installations of another country. And a lot of these things are co-located with with civilian populations. Right. So that's kind of why you you do you target and ends up destroying cities too. But it's destroying what you think. Oh, eventually, it evolved into different options. So maybe you just want to attack military installations and not also cities. Or you want to attack just certain sets of military operations. Maybe you want to just attack uh, this one particular army battalion or an Mm -hmm, air force base mm -hmm. and then say, look, we're not going to escalate any further, so you need to back down. And then there's, well, what do you do to respond to that? Do you respond to the use of, if you destroy one city or one military installation in particular, let's say you just destroy an army base, is your only response to that to destroy everything else around the world? Right. You know, maybe people would think, well, you wouldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. You try to make something that's a little closer, a proportional, proportional response. response. Yeah. So those 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 things have changed. We don't just target, uh, South, say, South America unless there's things there that the other country would think that that would be valuable to you. You would want to hold at risk the things that that one country values. So for the U.S., it's its population, it's or its military installations. It's things like that. The Russians, it might be not necessarily, at the time, the Soviet Union, maybe the U.S. thinkers were, they don't care a lot about cities. Yeah. They care about military installations and maybe other things like where where the the, the leadership has their vacation homes. Yeah. Or, you know, anything like that. Like, what, what do you want to hold at risk? What do you value? And I'm going to threaten it. Yeah. So all that kind of stuff changes uh, as they go along.
2: I think that's what's the interesting thing about, you see it in this movie and you certainly see it, I'm sure, in all the movies you guys have discussed, is like... Hollywood's vision of what nuclear war would be. And, and like maybe it's a distinction, with, it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, if you live in LA or New York or DC, you're going to be consumed in nuclear fire, you know, in, in a big war between the Soviet Union no, and the United it, States. It's a good question because. So it, it doesn't matter what happens to Buenos Aires. No, you know? it,
0: but it does, though, because I think uh, in Terminator 2, they say that half the population was destroyed. And at that time, it was 6 billion people. Uh And then later on, they even mention, I think in Genesis, 3 billion people were killed. So it sounds about half of the world's population was destroyed during Judgment Day. But so where do the survivors exist? Probably a lot of them are in places where there wasn't going Um, to be an attack. Yeah. Um, And it's also unclear if it's just the U.S. and the Soviets fighting. Like, does China get involved? Yeah. India and Pakistan, who eventually... And ninety eight and get nuclear weapons. Um, There's all these other countries that are left there to to be questioned whether or not they're get involved as well. Although I think in Genesis it might be implied that the virus spreads to all kind of military installations. I don't know. That's actually unclear to me.
1: Well, I mean, I was going to add. I guess the 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 beginning of the franchise. It seems like it's just attacks, just an attack from the U S. which precipitates the Soviet Union to respond. But I felt like the tone almost shifted in future movies yep. where it's more that Skynet launches all nuclear – you know, Like it's, rewires the yeah, planet yeah, and it takes just covers control everything. Of all yeah. of them and then just strategically targets all humans, which as far as like taking out all humans, that, that makes sense right. more so than – kind of the 1980s mindset which was let's kickstart a, a civil war right or into a right
0: hot war. well i think a lot of that changes too as the internet itself becomes a thing
1: mm. in 84
0: that wasn't really a widespread notion yeah. or really a widespread connected internet but then as you get 91 yeah, a little bit there but then but yeah, by, still, yeah. but by t- the early 2000s it's pretty it's it's getting bigger yeah so you can think about the virus in, in terminator 3 i think it actually it is when it spreads everywhere mm-hmm. around the world and then all it's waiting for is the access to the U.S. arsenal to get things started. Then that's when it spreads out a little bit further, and then Genesis even further because it, this seems to be a global operating right, system. Right, right. You, you see that evolve in terms of what Skynet's reaches on on Judgment Day itself. And then I think in later movies it, they refer to it more as a an augment to U.S. missile defense systems before Skynet becomes self-aware. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they they talk about upgrading strategic air command and NORAD systems to have Skynet to basically run all of these things. And we talked a little about that again in the War Games episode, as well as Fail Safe, because there's this discussion within a lot of these movies about how much trust you put into automated systems. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you let machines? handle these things because they think faster especially during, when you see a bunch of missiles incoming right you need to make some quick decisions uh or do you let humans stay in the loop i think it's one of the things that they re- mention in, in terminator 3 so a lot of these same debates are are happening over and over again but they happen in real life too so mm-hmm. there's a system in the united states that was filled in 1963 and then later upgraded in the 70s and the 80s called the strategic automated command and control system which is s-a-c-c-s i, I don't know how to pronounce it. Saks. Sounds, yeah. Sure. Saks. And this is a system which is used to uh, network these things called emergency action messages or EAMs uh, to the individual war fighters. In the middle, uh, the president makes a decision to fire a nuclear weapon in the United States. These EAMs go out as part of the the, uh, National Command Authority and it's how that message goes from the president authorizing an attack and being authenticated as the president to the people who actually physically push the button or flip the, usually it's a key term, yeah, and yeah. missile silos and things like that. That process is really complicated, and you have to be able to manage the incoming information to make the right decision. SACS was designed uh, by U.S. Strategic Command to be able to communicate with each other to give that launch order. It also is part of intelligence, or early warning systems, damage assessment as war is happening, and, and, and other systems. And as we mentioned, this is a complicated program, and the security of that system is is also very, very important. There's about 93 network nodes around the country and around the world where all these things are integrated, but largely based on old technology. Because yeah. this is when these things were designed and there was a perception that uh, as we went later on, simple is better. Yeah. The more things you, you add to a system, the more complex you make it makes it. Wrong. Possibly can something more things can go wrong. But what you get some fun stuff out of that particular philosophy. So, the GAO, which does a lot of assessments of government programs around in the United States, in 2016, they did an assessment of the SACS program mm-hmm. and set, found out that it was one of the oldest IT systems in the government still using 1970s technology, early era IBM series, one computer is with those eight-inch floppy disks. If you remember those, I used to play video games on those things. But those were what you would have a lot of the launch systems were located on that because they were analog systems. They weren't open to an outside internet they were harder to hack they were yeah, yeah, yeah. simple they want to make sure that they work you know why fix it if it ain't broken yeah in the united you know, this is a kind of reflection of us it as well uh, about 60 billion of the government's 80 billion annual it infrastructure goes to just maintaining the existing systems not hmm. upgrading at all so it's very expensive to keep these things running not just nuclear but mm-hmm. all kinds of government stuff so when i worked in government my dell computer was very very old very very slow and it's not easy to upgrade those things because yeah. you upgrade it, you have to you have to change it for everything gao is to, has recommended that we upgrade these things and the military is definitely trying to do it i'm not sure if they're trying to upgrade it with skynet but they are trying to do some things uh by the end of 2017 the fiscal year 2017 they're going to change over from the floppy drive systems to these more advanced uh hard drives and in other kind of things that they're trying to fix going back to the idea of of integrating a lot of different battlefield assessments there is another program called integrated strategic planning and analysis network which aims to provide planning and support capabilities to the strategic deterrence mission Hmm. uh, and other kind of global strike programs within u.s strategic command according to dr andrew fuller uh, who is a professor at the university of leicester he's done some studies on, on on ice ban Uh, in 2004 when it was finally completed that this program will allow Stratcom in Omaha to coordinate its defense portfolio between the nuclear mission as well as conventional uh, systems and other kind of cyber warfare, ballistic missile defense, all that stuff. And it's basically tools, once it's finished, to better plan mm. for all these incoming attacks when you have you know X, Y, and Z. So you remember all that at the end of war games when all the different uh, scenarios are running through the system right. and they're trying to figure out what to do and ultimately they decide they can't win? Yeah. Um, this is what this program is supposed to help with. It's supposed to help with the planning and direction of all of these cool. different networks once they get created. Uh, it is pretty cool, but Professor Futter's ultimately has concluded that simply having the best technology and the latest technology might not necessarily be the safest. Mm. Uh, as we kind of mentioned before, the more things you add to a system make it more complex, there's better chance of things going wrong, especially when you deal with nuclear weapons, maybe with a simpler one is the better one.
2: So I, this thing, like, I guess simulates, you know, all these different mm-hmm. inputs, right. And says, here's the recommended course of action. I don't know if that's just like a black box and someone who's in charge of fu- actually executing these orders just sort of gets a an output, sp- you know, spit out on the other end. To what extent does that person trust that? If it, it can't kind of see the inner workings or right. the decision-making that you would in like a traditional, you know, human... Uh, sort of calculation, right?
0: Well, even these older systems, these analog systems, failed quite yeah. a bit. There was many scary examples, uh, which you can you can read about and find histories about of near misses yeah. for, for nuclear accidents, and even on these older systems. One example that we, we mentioned before uh, in one of our episodes, I think it was in the War Games episode, there, there was a training tape, like a tape put into the system to simulate a nuclear attack, and you would then see what this—that's what the signals would look like if we were under attack. So they had training missions to, yeah. to do it. No one removed the tape. so when they turned the system back on, it looked like they were under attack again. They're like, "Oh my gosh, what's going on?" But no, no other parts of the early warning system indicated an attack. so yeah. they realized what had happened they had the wrong tape in there Jeez. or a computer chip malfunctioned and sent a signal that they, that someone was under attack or this computer chip malfunctioned and instead of it saying that there were uh, you know zero incoming missiles it made it it put a two there. And that two zero zero, like 2,000 incoming missiles, the entire Soviet arsenal, people freaked out about these things. But because these analog systems were a little easier to understand, they were, they were simpler in terms yeah. of their, their functioning. It wasn't necessarily just this black box that you get with these digital systems yep. where a lot of the people that build them aren't the same ones operating them yeah in these older analog systems, people were trained on on how to fix problems right on site, yeah, and nowadays, those two worlds are very much disconnected. so you have your IT guy who comes in and tries to fix everything, but maybe that's not the same person who actually manages the incoming of the data, mm-hmm. so that's one of the worries that this professor has for when you put these new systems they're they're going to be faster and smarter, but they're also going to be more complex, yeah and it's more opportunities too, if you can figure out how to do it for hackers and outside government people. To, be right. able to to integrate into it. Now, the military systems like this, especially on nuclear are kept open air separation. They aren't connected to the wider internet as we would know it. Yeah. Like there aren't plugs into those systems. But yeah. as Joel and I talked about in our in our Independence Day episode, that like for example in Iran with their enrichment program it was, that was a separated enrichment facility that was off the grid in terms of the internet, but that stuck next virus got put into that That's system the manufacturing at yeah. level, right? Yeah. It got yeah. exactly. At the manufacturing level and in through flash drives that probably got infected on a windows computer somewhere right. else. And then a, a worker brought their flash drive to work not knowing the way they're supposed to do it, and then, bam, it's in the system. It replicates itself, and you can't get rid of it. Yeah. So those things are definitely worries for people. We're in an integrated global economy where computer chips, say, for example, are built in China. Yeah. Or are they going to have something on there? And that's a worry that all military systems have. And China worries that if the U.S. defense contractors will build some kind of hardware, is there a kill switch yeah. built into it when they buy it? Or satellites? All pe- countries worry about these things. Uh, quite a bit when it comes to their technologies and things like that. Those are the kind of questions that planners think about when they integrate these new systems. But in the case of Terminator 3, they were under this crisis of a uh, virus. So they make a quick decision mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. And the president says, you know, if it's what's going to keep our... Because I think in Terminator 3, right, Joel, the, the missile, the U.S. missile defense and nuclear ICBMs, all that stuff goes off the grid. So they can't, it like, lights out. They weren't able to see if there was an incoming attack or control all those things so that was certainly a problem Mm. but still the the decision to fire a nuclear weapon even with all of these integrated systems is still done by human hands yeah it's still something that the president needs to make a decision about and then ultimately someone has to push a button or flip a switch and all that kind of stuff there was some questions uh back in the, the the 1880s about whether or not you want to take human beings out of that process so Bill Stevens, who was an engineer who headed up in the United States the the nuclear safety part of the Sandia Lab, who's a na- it's a national laboratory that handles a lot of the nuclear uh, mission and, and, and nuclear research, he refused to agree to a study that the that military leaders wanted about whether or not the Pershing 2 missiles that were located in West Germany in the in the 1980s whether or not they should be put on a computerized launch procedure system. So he cited concerns about uh, deliberate, unauthorized launches due to software glitches or anything like that. So it never never went through, and he considers it one of his major points of pride in in, in his career. But later on, uh, the Soviet Union made kind of a similar decision but went the other way. We've all kind of seen Dr. Strangelove, right? Yeah, The Doomsday Machine. People thinking maybe, ah, that sounds crazy. But the Doomsday Machine was a real system. That maybe wasn't the one being referenced in the, in the movie because sure. it takes place a little bit later on after it comes out, right. a decade later. But the Soviet Union in 1974 had a system that automated command and control processes, which they called the perimeter system. So the perimeter system would basically detect whether or not there was an incoming attack on the homeland of Russia. And then this program called dead hand, hmm. which you would imagine, you know, like a dead hand trigger, yeah. you step on it, it explodes, which is pretty similar to Dr. Strangelove's uh, Doomsday Machine, Come to Life. Uh, one of the books I'll recommend at the end is a book that's actually holding up our microphone stand here by David Hoffman, talks a lot about the dead hand system, which was discovered, um, people had hints about it, but it was discovered at the end of the Soviet Union, a lot of these previously classified documents were found in, in people's offices and things, and we found out about this stuff. Now, and very much like... Doctor, in Dr. Strangelove, this program was never announced yeah. uh, publicly, yeah. which eliminates its deterrence effect. Because the idea is you couldn't attack the Russian leadership, wherever they happen to be, and knock them out, which would then stop the Russians from being able to do uh, a retaliatory strike. Right. This system says that if there was an attack, which most likely would say destroy the Kremlin, that this program would automatically authorize the use of nuclear weapons. Now, humans would still have to pull the trigger or you know push the button or flip the switch and all that but it would automate that decision process immediately it wouldn't so, know what was happening it would just know a nuclear bomb went off it's a big weapon you know they have these calibrating systems to determine what a bomb is versus an earthquake or something like that mm-hmm. It would, but it would automate that system much quicker than if the premier of russia had to make a decision it was never turned on but it was a program that was that was there to, as an option in, in a crisis they would flip that switch and hopefully then announce to the world, but mm-hmm. the other side, you know, the United States has to believe it. They have to know that it works, mm-hmm. and all that. But the-
2: so, I mean, on, on the automation thing, we, we talked a lot about how, like, you put this in the hands of artificial intelligence, some automated, you know, computer system or whatever. But conceivably, you know, if you have a system like this where you need to be able to reliably respond to an attack, you kind of want to even automate like the human element, right? You don't want there to be dissent in the system basically. You want everyone to be a good soldier and kinda of do their thing. So right. I mean You
0: don't want to see like at the beginning of war games where John Spencer decides not mm. the, not
2: to push the button or flip the switch. Right. Obviously as a human being you do want situations like that. Yes. But if you're designing this system, you know, you want to cut down on that. So I mean can you speak at all to even like, you know, independent of an automated machine system what at all was done in sort of the traditional human flipping the switches at the same time was done to try to encourage people just to follow orders and not really think for themselves.
0: Well, they certainly that there's training programs that the Air Force Uh does for all these people. Although it's always fascinating, the people that are in those missile silos, it's kind of a, it's a very important job, but it's also a boring job in the sense of the other kind of action you could be doing. So a lot of these guys are very young. Yeah. And sometimes they're, they're still in school in the mil, in you know military military academies, and this is their they do homework hmm. while they're waiting for no orders hopefully to come. But while they do training programs and all that kind of stuff, a lot of these people I met a few of the, these commanders uh, or people they're, they're the missile leaders as they're called. It's it's kind of a it's a fascinating job, and they, but they're trained and trained and trained that it's not a decision that they need to make. They need to authenticate everything, and then they go ahead. and and go through with it and there's different programs that people have done about maybe you have to have multiple silos at the same time authorized so that it's not just one group that's able to do it that's why you have these two people that can do it instead of just one making the decision within the individual silo they've done lots of different arrangements and that's changed over over the years Mm. Uh, you have different operations on, on bombers you have different uh, procedures as well on, on in nuclear ballistic missile submarines. Mm-hmm. Like there's different procedures along those lines, but it's always had humans at a certain level having to make that final that final decision. So it's so that it's not automated. So you can have a, an idea that uh, it's not a computer glitch that would ultimately cause it. It was still have to be done by human hands. Mm-hmm. And I think people. But back back to the the real world kind of fun stuff. The National Security Agency in the real in the real world has a program as well called Skynet. Uh, at, Again, why would you name things like this? But it deals more with collecting metadata on phone calls. This was a program that was you found out about when Edward Snowden did his thing. but there's another program that's similar in in function but not name to Skynet called Monstermind, which again, when you name these kind of things, you know what you do when you're naming these things uh, and it was revealed in a, in a, an interview with Wired magazine by with, with snowden and and Monster Mind is a defense surveillance network. Which could be used to identify and basically automatically attempt to block cyber attacks against the U.S. from either uh, hackers or outside powers, including retaliatory strikes. So if similar to Terminator Genesis, that really focuses on the on the cyber dimensions yeah. of those. They would detect an incoming attack and try to stop it. or then respond. A cyber back. attack. A cyber attack. Yes cyber attack so that was but that would remove the human element but let's let's get away from that stuff the the kind of really in the weeds things let's just go to the nuclear imagery in some of these films because it's really iconic as we mentioned um terminator 2 for me was such a big deal because it was one of the first times i saw nuclear weapons like that being used and it was a lot of work that was done into those things. So based on the research that I found, you know, we all kind of maybe have heard of Stan Winston who did a, he's a big special effects guru. He's done a lot of different films and he did a lot of the early uh, Terminator films as well. He put hours and hours of research looking at nuclear test footage and other kind of explosions and th- and that's what he created when he did Sarah Connor's nuclear nightmare. Mm. He put pulled all these things together and a couple facts about that that particular imagery stuff. Cameron says in an in interview, he says, the paranoia of both of these films, Terminator 1 and Terminator 2, is, is something very near and dear to my heart, <laughs> explaining that he had feared nuclear annihilation ever since seeing footage of nuclear explosions as a child and he wrote his own fears into the Sarah uh, Connor dream ni- nightmare sequence this was such a big deal in terms of pop culture that in 1991 members of several of these uh, scientific labs like Sandia and all yeah. that got together and wrote a letter and declared it unofficially the the most accurate depiction of a nuclear blast ever created for a motion picture hmm. these people like, I've never actually seen this letter but James Cameron talks about it and it's in news reports and stuff um, I would I don't know if I would agree with that entirely there's some things that they change but but it's supposed to be like a nightmare yeah. sequence. So some of the things like you see in Los Angeles, it's an airburst, which is kind of fascinating because it's exactly the kind of thing you would do for a city. You don't – the bomb goes off above the city. It doesn't like hit the ground oh, and explode like, a, like a, other kinds of bombs might. It, it explodes maybe a thousand feet above something along those lines because you want to have a bomb, especially for a city – a lot of those targets are softer than, say, a military installation or a, harder, right. a hardened silo and all that kind of stuff, which you want to get a lot closer to the ground. So if you want to blow a city up, imagine a nuclear bomb goes off. It's usually a big spherical blast. You want to have that sphere cover the largest area possible. To do that, you have to have the center of that above ground. Mm. Uh, you know, up in the air. So that's very accurate. You see the the initial heat wave, which is the thing in Sarah Connor's dream that sets everyone on fire, and then you have the blast wave kind of come after that. That's very, very, very accurate. Now, there's some things that they're done for poetic license, where the idea of her her flesh being melted off mm-hmm. and then blown away, and you have the skeleton flying and all that stuff. That's very scary, but most likely what would have happened is you know you have that initial catch on fire. It's not hot enough to melt. The flesh off your bones and yeah. all that kind of creepy stuff but it, it would knock everything over pretty much immediately um but it does a good job of showing the fact that all this stuff would be pushed away and and caught on fire I, I, that, all that together works pretty well um for me and I, it's also very violent you see you yeah. see like people the actual people not just buildings being destroyed but people and i think that's one of the things that i think a lot of these uh People who are interested in nuclear weapons and, and maybe interested in maybe not having nuclear weapons as much as we do are, are finding this movie really fascinating because it really gets to – this isn't just about blowing up buildings or mm. blowing up silos. People can be affected by these things.
2: Wasn't there a – maybe I'm this. Wasn't there like a Reagan political ad where there was like a kid playing in a nuclear explosion – Or something like that.
0: If you want to learn more about that, you should check out our most, (laughs) our our latest mini nuke
2: episode. We're right before
0: the election happened, we thought it would be very clever to to do an episode on those political ads. It was okay. a, a 60 the 1964 campaign between okay, uh, LBJ and, then, yeah. and yeah, but I mean it was before that. Yeah, was, yeah LBJ, i will refer you to that episode, but LBJ versus Goldwater, that particular election, the Daisy ad is what you're referring yes, to. Yes, yes. Uh, although again, <laughs> it was, the little girl was was picking flowers from a dandelion, not a daisy, but I guess <laughs> that's super Again, being super critical, Tim. Yeah, sorry about that. Like Terminator, that imagery for T2 of a nuclear bomb going off and, and destroying children playing yeah, in the playground. context
2: of ki- children playing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: That certainly was, was, was very important to me. I didn't, when I was a young man in 91, uh, in first grade, I think I wasn't watching political ads from 1964 that this was my version of that. Yeah. Uh, so it certainly, it's an iconic representation at the time. Uh, that sticks with people's minds.
2: I guess my point was it was either... what Was it maybe that scene maybe either influenced by or at least playing off the same emotions, right? Of like mm. children in a playground. So, you know, kind of the base level of innocence, right? Yeah. And just being annihilated.
1: I think that the movies also play up I don't know, maybe not play up, but they, they emphasize because you have Sarah Connor and John Connor, her son, the mother-child connection. Mm-hmm. And you see that especially in, in T2 where they're explaining to Dyson what he's what he's about to do with Skynet and she kind of takes a very, I would say, motherly approach to yep. kind of scolding the, the passionate pursuit of, of technology as if that's creating something and she kind of compares that to that's creating right. a life. So it's this really, uh, and, and I, I credit kind of James Cameron's films. I know he's done that with very strong female leads. I thought that was an interesting way to couch the overall concept of kind of nuclear warfare and and complete annihilation uh-huh. in the very real human terms of you know a mother and child, and kind of raises the emotional stakes uh, even more. Mm.
0: That that's true. Uh, the quote that James Cameron had about Terminator films, he says that the idea is that it's nuclear destruction and what we're going to do about it is technology going to overwhelm us or are we going to take control of it? Obviously, the core concept is fate versus free will. And are we able to be the architects of our own destiny? And that's why I think that T2 ends in a very positive message before it gets taken over by uh, T3 and and 4 and 5 and 6 through 37 uh, in in the future. So I think you can see a lot of that stuff in in his ultimate conception of what nuclear weapons can and can't be and how humans respond to it.
2: Hmm.
1: Okay, so uh, going back from the, the philosophical underpinnings of, of these debates, I want to go to straight uh, movie magic and being super critical. So, Tim, you've had this nuclear fallout. Um, let's go back to the original timeline where it was 97. Apparently the humans have won in the late, 20, late 2020s. All of the movies present snippets of real combat out in these wastelands but there's no mention of radiation or you know they're just kind of walking around with like Kevlar you know like flak jackets or whatever like helmets and then they're shooting laser guns (laughs) talk to us about only 30 years after all these nuclear attacks, for the the places that were directly hit by nuclear bombs, I assume that's a little kind of movie magic, like don't dwell on it too much about the facts. But even the areas that weren't directly impacted, I imagine if you had worldwide nuclear fallout, that you know even places far away from the actual blast zones would be affected by radiation or other ancillary, you know, water poisoning stuff. So what what's the accuracy of those post nuclear attack uh, snippets that we see?
0: I would refer you to our mini-nuke episode number two, which was very much on uh, fallout and radiation. That was our blast from the past episode. We took a romantic comedy, which is very much about a fish-out-of-the-water story, and I really wanted to focus on the nuclear side of that story. But it's a very good question. I do not think that the Terminator movies do a very strong or even care depiction. Like, they don't care about the depiction of nuclear winter or any of those things. It's just not important. There's no discussion of nuclear winter. They talk about the ashes of nuclear fire, but... I don't think they mean anything along those lines. Largely, I think that's a punted choice or a punted question. They don't really want to talk about it too much. But I do think that a lot of people's perceptions of what the world would look like after a nuclear war are a little – they're sometimes in a way exaggerated Mm -hmm. and other times underestimated. It's exaggerated to the idea that you would need to be underground for hundreds of years. Right. So like you have those – the fallout video games where people stay underground for hundreds of years. You don't need to do that – in terms of the initial concern about radiation, it's two weeks for most ah. of the like radioactive fallout, which is the radioactive particles from the fission reaction gets mi- mixed with either de- dirt, debris, buildings in the sky, falls down, and then that has spontaneous radiation that keeps occurring. That kind of those products that can hurt you—gamma rays, beta rays, those things—go away pretty good after about two weeks. Mm. So you need to survive that. Then there's other concerns after that. Water is not as big of a deal as some other things. But really what you're worried about is if enough dirt and debris gets kicked up into the air, then mm. you get potentially like blackened skies and climate change, all of those things can happen. That's something I think the movie maybe hints at cuz everyone's somewhat living underground in Terminator 2 and Terminator 1. They they say that's mostly cuz the the machines hunt better at night. I think the movie's changed. In Terminator Salvation, they say that they fight better at night. So they come out during the day, but in Terminator One, they say you co- you can't go out during the day, but you can at night. Mm. I think they change those up, whatever. But those kind of things, nuclear winter isn't really discussed as as something that actually happens. It kind of is, it just gets ignored. There's very strong theories, and I would I'd probably would would align the idea that if enough nuclear weapons are used around the world, there's a possibility for like a really long time where the skies will be blackened, and populations will dwindle because. You can't grow food, yeah. all that kind of stuff. But uh, certainly in Terminator Salvation, it's not a concern at all.
1: Well, I mean, that's why, yeah, that's why I was going to ask because, I mean, you also have like the depictions of Chernobyl. Um, and I'm thinking yeah. of Transformers where they actually go out there and they're running around in radiation suits and everything is basically frozen still and kind of a, a cold, deathly, you know, uh, sheen to everything. Well, that, that's different because that's a, a
0: nuclear reactor that's still emitting radiation. Yeah, actively leaking. Yeah, it's still yeah. actively leaking. So they, they put con- containment vessels on top of the reactors and things like that. They're still working on new ones um, of that. I think actually maybe a new one was just recently installed. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. that's a good question, because so the interview, there was an, there was an interview done with the director of Terminator Salvation in Aiden Cool News, and he was asked why 2018, where the movie takes place, doesn't look like 2029 in Terminator 1 and 2, in terms of the fact that there's not a lot of war fighting, buildings are still kind of up, uh, and there aren't just what appears to be carpets made of human skulls that everybody just walking around. Like, if you watch Terminator 1, the robot's basically just going over a top of hundreds and you thousands of human skulls. Constantly crushing skulls, yeah. It just constantly. Now, it's cool imagery, but it's a little... There's
2: always a fresh skull to crush no <laughs> yeah. matter where they go, right? Even 30 years later. The director's like, yeah,
0: you're right. As we get closer to 2029, it will start to look more like that. And in... this is 2018. So we studied Chernobyl. We talked to the scientists. We talked to the futurists. We talked to the environmentalists. What does the world look like after it's destroyed itself? How long do you need to be underground? What does the Geiger meter say? What are the hot zones? Where are the cold zones? What is this nuclear winter all about? Supposedly, they thought about all these things. I would probably say Terminator Salvation ignores all those things, mm. and they certainly tried to talk a little bit about that. Again, there's so many other things to nitpick about, this, about these films the, on the nuclear side that you can't really – if you want to have resistance later on, you can't have a nuclear winter because everyone's gone. Well, I was
1: going say, I mean, we talked to the environmentalists and the scientists, <laughs> right. and then we took their report, and we put it on the bookshelf, right. and we said, hey, how about we have them drive around in a motorcycle that happens to be a robot? But you can control it why would you have a robot
0: then? anyway well like in terminator genesis there's like a a big wheeler truck that they're driving through and the and they have a, a, a controlled terminator like sitting behind it uh driving it up and down like a like a big haul. i almost wanted to see the 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 terminator like pulling the horn yeah <laughs> why would you build a steering wheel on a machine driven by a terminator why isn't it just
1: the terminator especially because in t3 Mm-hmm. You see the TX go back in time to 2004 timeframe, and apparently just drill into a couple cop cars and make them automatically autonomous That's a good point. Yeah. and point that she can uh, operate by sheer force of will. So <laughs> right. you'd think they could take that technology and uh, apply it more broadly. But hey, I'm Great. just being super critical.
0: Welcome to the podcast.
1: There's a few other nuclear exchanges that I think are worth mentioning
0: here that are, that are fairly really fascinating the end of Terminator 3, you can see the bombs going off. There's some cool imagery of, it looks like farmland, and the nuclear silos are opened up and they're all firing at the exact same time. Yeah. That's fascinating because a lot of these nuclear silos are actually located very closely to farmland. Yeah. You know, out in Montana, in North Dakota, and the Dakotas and all that. They're located pretty closely because you need big, wide-open fields. The ideas that we eventually came up with was you have missile silos uh, far enough apart so that if you hit it with them with one bomb, you can't destroy multiple. Silos, mm. you have to hit them each with their own mm. individual target, and for that, you need a lot of open space, and you got all this open space, why not grow some corn there too? And You see all these missile trails you can see even kind of from space all the different incoming missiles. you see like a little bit of a trail of smoke as they're coming in i didn't really make sense of that if it was the if it was entering the atmosphere, the warhead itself. Which looks again like we talked about. They look like ice cream cones without ice cream on top. Mm. They're like these little triangles. fields. those are the reentry vehicles that hold the warhead. Those. Could have some smoke on the reentry. Couldn't tell if they were just doing that shorthand thing that some other movies do where it's one giant missile Mm. that lands on top of a city and all that. Couldn't tell. But there's there's some cool imagery of all the bombs going off at the same time. And from space, you see little explosions
1: here and there. Yeah, I was just going to credit kind of the collective uh, assumptions. You know, we were talking about how previous movies have built up people's expectations about how a yeah. certain technology works with like war games where you saw like the the little lines go up the prep or you know the angles and then fall down on on the United States it seems like having the tracers of the smoke mm. you know that's kind of the what I forget what you call them, the trigger the shorthand the triggers to say oh yeah that's a nuclear bomb I yeah. know what that looks like but only because I've seen that
0: in previous movies right. not
1: necessarily reality
0: yeah, I was ready to nitpick the heck out of that scene uh, in Terminator 3 because it almost looks like you can see where the bombs like take off and they go a little bit of an arc and then they land back down. But it's really hard to tell if that's just the angle of where it starts and it's already made its ballistic path around the world. Gotcha. Because, I mean, maybe. Uh, you can't really fire a ballistic missile that way from, like, an intercontinental ballistic missile from a missile silo, say, from North Dakota to land on Los Angeles. Yeah. They don't... Travel in that path. You would need to go a little bit further out. But maybe they've they've done some changes of things like. But what I what I do think it's cool is they don't show the same missiles like double bombs hitting the same city. They're always spread apart, mm. which is a thing that a lot of people that do missile targeting have to take into consideration. There's these things called infant side when you have two warheads coming in. Sometimes you want to put two warheads on a city or a military installation because maybe one of them won't work or it'll miss you don't just assume that your weapons are going to be completely accurate so as they're incoming you want to maybe put two on a city or something along those lines not necessarily on a city but on a military installation Mm -hmm. but you have to time them so that the second one is not incoming when the blast is happening from the first one otherwise you destroy it yeah so they do all those things i imagine a computer that's that smart as skynet can make those decisions about how to do that a lot a lot better and then at the the beginning of terminator genesis there's this really cool scene where you see all these bombs go off in san francisco and london i think and some other places you see all these families having a barbecue and they look behind them and they see this flash and they go oh fireworks nope and then they all kind of melt away. So there's a lot of that imagery and stuff like that. And as we mentioned earlier, at the end of Terminator 3, John Connor and, and Kate uh, Brewster, they hide away in this in this bunker. And it looks like a presidential bunker and all that. But I did a little bit of research on that. And I, this is really fascinating. So they say this is in uh, the Sierra Mountains, of uh, installation called Crystal Peak, where our, our hero thinks that the Skynet Central Core is at. um but this is actually filmed, I think, based on all the research that I've seen, at a, at a place called Greenbrier in West Virginia, which was, until 1992, the real-life congressional nuclear fallout bunker. Mm-hmm. People here in, the, in D.C. would get on helicopters or fly or drive or whatever they would do to get to this bunker, which is basically a resort hotel. In the 1960s, this bunker was built, and it was actually called uh, Project Greek Island. It was named until 92 when the Washington Post released a story and said, oh, by the way, this place that everyone's staying at that's like three or $400 a night, in the basement they have a nuclear fallout bunker for congressional staff. Huh. At that point, it was decommissioned because then it would be targeted by a Russian <laughs> or Chinese, stuff like that.
1: Wait, so uh, I'm curious. Do, do you know what extent of the movie shots are from that bunker? I mean, do they even have that huge wall or you know thing that ends up crushing the – the good Arnold along with the T.
0: I don't think that's there. Now,
1: I one of my things I want to
0: do early next year is go to that uh, place and take some pictures and things like that. I've asked uh, my wife to maybe take me there for my birthday or something along those <laughs> lines. Because you can go there now and go on tours. It's very expensive to stay there. It's something like three or $400 or something like that. I don't need to stay there. I'll stay at the budget inn next door and then go there. But they don't. I don't think they have those giant fallout doors. They have really strong thick reinforced steel doors, but they don't need to look like that. Though That appears to be kind of a, an amalgamation Between uh, NORAD Like Cheyenne Mountain stuff from War Games Which is a real They do have that giant door there That looks pretty cool And then they combine that with This congressional fallout bunker So I think some of the interior shots Are filmed there Like where you would see You see the presidential seal And all the chairs Like some of that I think is filmed Filmed there Or anyways it's certainly an inspiration Hasta la vista Baby Let's move into the parking lot movie discussions section of our podcast, where we finish, finish watching the movie, or in this case, five movies. And we're outside the parking lot trying to make sense of everything. So, Joel, did you enjoy the catalog here? Lead us off here.
1: Uh, well, I mean, you can't deny the Terminator franchise as imperfect vessels as the later movies may have been. T1 for both kind of its groundbreaking storyline at that time in the 80s, moving action movies You know, with Arnold Schwarzenegger to a a little more cerebral uh, exercise to T2 with its, you know, visual effects. I mean, can't go wrong with either of those movies, especially T2. I feel like that is one of those movies where you see on cable flipping through channels and you're like, wherever you are in the movie, you're like, well, I got to finish it to the end. One of the best, one of the best, like, second movies, like, sequel movies. Yeah. Now, I will say the other reason why I really like the franchise, especially the first two movies, and I think it's a credit to James Cameron and I know we, uh, it's been kind of in our, our notes, is the the strong female leads. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you also saw it with the Alien franchise with Sigourney Weaver playing Ellen Ripley. Ripley's one of my favorite cinematic characters mm-hmm. like ever of all time. She's just like an awesome... Character generally, and I thought Linda Hamilton follows that up nicely. I, I can't remember which. I think Alien came out in '79, right after Star Wars, and so uh, this followed up after that in the '80s. As far as like a strong female lead in a in a smart movie, but also an action movie. I mean, they are exciting movies, and you know Arnold Schwarzenegger for all of his previous movies were known for you know just kind of a You know Arnold Schwarzenegger and he kind of blows a lot of stuff up and I thought this was a movie where they were able to take that DNA but then turn it into a little something more Mm. in both the 80s and in the 90s
0: yeah it's it's a great point Alex what do you think
2: I I definitely agree I mean Cameron's known for the strong female lead thing so I agree with everything that Joel said there but the thing I really like about I've already talked about I love T2, but T1 was really cool to me because it's almost as though, like, it doesn't really even matter that it's like a sci fi thing. There's these kind of cool, uh, I don't want to say like horror, but like monster movie elements to it where it's just like humans running from. Run away. Like Frankenstein kind of character. In T2, you have a bit more of a balance because you have good Arnold versus the bad Terminator. I really liked, especially since I kind of saw it when I was older the first terminator movie was something that felt just very original and new especially when you consider that it was made in 1984 i really like that aspect of it
0: yeah i mean we mentioned earlier that each movie was kind of came out in its own decade uh-huh and it's which is a crazy fascinating thing by itself but I, I like these movies a lot too because they really reflect the time period that they came out and like some of the best horror action movies don't yeah. just have cool action sequences, but kind of maybe have a little bit of what you might be afraid of or what yeah. you might be interested in at a particular time. And I think they do a great job uh, with these. And I also find it fascinating, the th- the theme of society building the tools of its own destruction, the mm-hmm. idea whether it's it's AI and, and nuclear weapons and Terminator robots and all those things put together, I think is a pretty cool uh, sub-theme within that. Also, the idea of, of enemies becoming friends and then... Huh. Down the line, you know, have like Kyle Reese. You think at the beginning of the movie might be a bad guy, or at least Linda Hamilton's character thinks that it that that might be the mm-hmm. case. But then you later find out, you know, he's he's a good guy, and it kind of works together. And then the same thing gets inverted in T in two mm-hmm. when you think Arnold's the bad guy, and it's a fascinating little arcs that they have for all these things. Questions about maybe what is what is the worst uh, AI? What, what's the worst thing AI and in artificial intelligence or maybe later on like in Terminator Salvation you have humans fighting amongst each other Mm. and then you have uh, a robot in Terminator 2 who sometimes becomes more human than some of these other human characters. These are fascinating discussions I think that make these more than just action movies, at least the first two.
1: It reminds me in some ways of the best zombie movies where the best zombie movies aren't just horror movies but they also make you question what makes us human and are there situations where we seem more barbaric than right. the machines or the zombies, whichever one you're looking at?
0: So, so do you think these movies are, are is a, overall a hopeful movie uh, series in the sense like is, is this people fighting to survive and to prevent awful events from taking place in the future? Or is it just one of those things where because time travel and the way it works, it's just basically meaningless? Is it somewhat in a way like mm. a little nihilistic? For some of these films, it doesn't matter what you do. Eventually, the same thing's going to keep happening over and over again. It's interesting to me because in Terminator Two, it ends on that kind of positive note. And then everyone after that, it's always like no matter what we do, the robots win. Yeah, these things win, and we have to keep fighting these same battles over and over again. We have to keep watching kind of the same movie over and over again, uh, which is just I think that happens a lot when movies get this long in the tooth in terms of the number of sequels. You kind of get that a little bit with the Die Hard movies, even though I like live free and die hard
2: well I do think that you do you have to take into account the fact that like Salvation Genesis were arguably money grabs you know right. they were like in Salvation we want to relaunch this franchise in kind of a different light Christian Bale so hot right now let's use him so like I, I guess I what I'm trying to say is I wouldn't invest too much into those movies meaning hmm. If you're looking for, like, you know, is what's the meaning of the the franchise, I think maybe you just stick to, you know, T1 and T2. Yeah. Um, with
0: well, the spackling of me with the fun stuff in T3. Uh, yeah, you know.
2: right. And I, ultimately, I think, yeah, because, you know, like we talked about, T2 ended on a very helpful note. Um, ultimately, the good guys win, and, you know, Judgment Day is put off. The bad guy is thwarted. So, yeah, ultimately, a hopeful, hopeful message. Mm-hmm.
1: I go back and forth. I mean, I do think it is a, a hopeful message, but I, I think there's also maybe not hopefulness or optimism. But it, it's you you can take you can approach it with the you know the kind of clear headed no fate but what we make that you can completely control your destiny. And mm-hmm. I think that's what Cameron at least originally wanted to inspire people, especially at the end of T two that you know you're you're walking or you're driving down that lane at night. Mm-hmm. You don't know what's to come, but You think there's a possibility for a brighter day, but it's not guaranteed. Uh, And, you know, underscoring the whole thing of it, it is what you make of it. But I think there's another way of, as the additional movies came through, if you want to attach that to the canon, there's this idea of you can't change the future. But then you kind of say, well, then I have a responsibility to kind of tackle that future head on. And you saw that at the end of T3 where... You know, they, they're they radioing the different bunkers saying, oh, who's in charge there? And John Connor says, oh, I am. And he says it reluctantly and then he starts to realize like this is what he was made to do. You can get into like whether you think there's destiny or fate, mm. etc. But I, I think it's maybe not optimistic or hopeful but that sense of if there is something that I can't change, I'm at least going to go at it uh, with eyes wide open. And- you still have
0: – like if destiny is – if your fate is still determined in some way – you still have to make the decisions, the hard choices right. in, in your life. I can right. see that. Rather
1: I mean, than running away, which you right. saw in T3 where he literally sure. was and figuratively running away from whatever he thought the future was. Well,
0: Supposedly at the beginning of that movie when he's on the bridge and has dropped his beer bottle into the 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 overpass and everything, he was considering suicide because he didn't have any meaning in his life anymore. If his meaning of his life was stop judgment day. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, sorry. The last thing I'll, I'll ask you about this is, is what do you think as someone – uh, who has seen these films at different points in your life, do these movies tell you anything about nuclear weapons? Did, did the portrayal of nuclear weapons or the way that these function as a plot device? Did you take anything when you saw these films for the first time or whatever? Did you take anything away from that? Or is it just cool imagery? Did it make you think about this? Maybe re-watching it now versus earlier?
1: Well, I mean, I could say I don't know about Alex, but I could see it being the case. I mean, when I think of nuclear weapons being used, I think of the T2 Nightmare mm-hmm. scene. Yeah, just like, that, is, that is so. Anytime we're talking about nuclear weapons, anytime we've done a podcast and we're talking about like the um, fail safe when they have the awkward like where they freeze the the frame or whatever like, like, the at, of the various cityscapes or whatever. Like I was envisioning, oh, yep, here we go with uh, the T2 scene. That is the mental picture I have in my mind when I think of – maybe Maybe that's bad, but clearly it seems to be pretty accurate. So,
2: so I, I agree with that, that like that is very much uh, an image of what uh, you know nuclear war looks like, mm-hmm. right, is that your skeleton is uh, melded <laughs> to a chain-link fence as you watch your family be destroyed. Well, we'll
0: be really – uh, I'll <laughs> be disappointed in anticlimactic climactic if a nuclear bomb goes off near – like, near our hometown here in Arlington, Virginia, and I'm not next to a fence. <laughs> like, okay. what am I – what's the point of all that, you know?
2: But I will say – a window?
0: Pff,
2: <laughs> right. Do it again. I will. I will say that I always saw this more as, like, a – you know, the nuclear weapons were a means to an end. Like, the real threat was artificial intelligence hmm. or, you know, Technology automation. Right Technology right. generally – as opposed to specifically uh, nuclear weapons.
0: Cause, yeah, because one of the things that I always thought was fascinating about Skynet's... We can get into this now with the rating system here. Like Skynet's plan never really made a lot of sense to me. Like why Why did Skynet fight humans the way that they did after the first initial salvo of nuclear bombs? Because they're artificial intelligence. They're supposed to be like the smartest things right. around. Why didn't they invent some kind of biological weapon to kill humanity. In the in the Matrix they decide well it's cuz we need human bodies to be batteries. What is Skynet's mission? Is it to take humans and like force them down
1: I mean by setting off a bunch of nuclear bombs you're destroying most of the infrastructure that allows you as a sentient um, right. like you know electricity based entity. Destroying to power grids and the internet. So what what's the ideal? like
0: what, what is Skynet consider to be an ideal existence? I really don't know. If humanity yeah. is all destroyed Does Skynet just go, all right, this is fun. Are we just going to play Minesweeper together over and over again? Uh, What's the point of their existence? Now, is it to replicate and do all that like any sort of artificial intelligence might be? But would would an AI just be happy? Uh, And I think Roger Ebert makes such a comment about this in his review of Terminator 2. Why does Skynet want to destroy humanity? Why doesn't it just put its its consciousness onto a satellite and launch it into space and just – as a conscious being there? Like what is its goals and motives?
1: Well, I, th- I thought at some point – and maybe I'm I'm projecting onto the dialogue and, and it doesn't actually exist. But I, I thought there was a discussion where it becomes self-aware and then it sees that the greatest threat to its existence – when it becomes self-aware, it then says, well, what is a threat to my mm-hmm. existence?
0: Because humans try to unplug it.
1: Right, right. Mm-hmm. Well, do they actually try to imply – I thought it That's was – That's
0: what it says in the movie anyways,
1: yeah. OK. Well, I guess I took it to be that because of the cold calculating nature of artificial intelligence, the idea is that it was able to process so many different scenarios of existence where it's like – the only way to almost like war games where mm-hmm. he's doing thousands and thousands yeah. of simulations where it says, well, even in a couple of seconds, Oh, I have to destroy all of humanity because at some point it's just not going to be tenable for us both to exist at the same time. So I might as well wipe them out right now. Mm.
0: Yeah. Skynet's goal is to survive. Humanity's goal in many of these films, uh, Terminator movies, they keep saying over and over again, just survive, just continue to live. Both of these two things just want to survive. But then, you kind of question like to what survival to what end near the end there i I never really kind of got that from like what's what's their end goal except to survive
1: well i fully expect if we get another terminator movie and i don't know i'm not really looking pursuing it but i could totally imagine them coming up with some matrix like baby robot thing to then uh chide you know humans and show a bunch of like uh you know, some yeah. uh, montage of like Hitler, Mussolini and all these, you know, like, oh you spent decades trying to destroy yourselves and now it's the machine's turn or something like it, that. It'll
0: be like the end of Animal Farm where the animals look at each other and be like the pigs just look like humans. Yeah. They become they become just like that. But well, this is getting pretty deep. I think the next terminator will be like Terminator philosophy or Terminator Plato's Republic or some <laughs> sort of discussion of, of what it means to exist. The so, architect, that's yeah. what we need. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, please, God, not again. Um, all right. So we always want to rate the movies, but we change the rating system because we want to make sure we tailor it just to the film that we just watched. So uh, let's do one out of five good Arnolds with a big old thumbs up, uh, which is also on fire because, you know, they're being melted and right. all that stuff. One of them is, is – it's it's sad because, you know, it's your best friend being melted and stuff. But if you get five of them together all in the same room with thumbs up, that's a pretty big uh, thumbs up party. So one out of five – Let's start with our guest, Alex here. What do you think? How would you rate this?
2: I mean, it's hard because, like, right, we're not doing a single movie, right? We're, yeah, we're, t- we're tra- not doing a single movie. Yeah, talking about the entire the franchise. The entire franchise. So, I don't know. I think you got to do three out of five because the first two were very good for the reasons we've discussed. third one was passable, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Genesis, you know, I watched and it was confusing and, and ham fisted. Um, so, you, you know, you have to judge, you know, the entire franchise that way. But the first two
0: are good enough that it keeps it at that three. Yeah,
2: I mean, without that, it would be, you know, what would we be talking about even? Right. Nothing, right? Okay. So Joel. three, I think three out of five.
1: I will go in the exact opposite direction, <laughs> although I understand that, that, that argument and that position, thoroughly understand it. I'm going to go five good Arnold's with flaming thumbs yeah. ups, much, just as I would say for the Alien franchise and even Star Wars T1, T2, watershed moments, I think, in, in mm. cinema, both from a, a, a visual effects but also blending science fiction and action movie with, again, a, a, a cerebral or, or – I don't want to say, oh, it's an action movie that actually makes you think because there are a lot of those right. out there. But I feel like that was one. Definitely had a cultural impact both for like movies with Arnold but also how people think about nuclear weapons and strong mm. female characters – I think that overshadows all the rest of the what, – what are basically imitations of those first two movies because they're clearly not the same right. production companies. They're, they're Like you said, I think it's more of a cash grab. I thought there were some good elements out of some of those movies yeah. like like the fight scenes from the future. They're a lot more – they're a lot better done yeah. I think. I mean but, there's,
0: there's some really cool imagery in Terminator Salvation like where there's this harvester machine. Yeah, like showing they, the real fight. And yeah, like, yeah, kind of a cool – whenever we watched it in the theater, like well, this, is, this is pretty cool and – and maybe, maybe well, I think when we first that movie finished, we're like, it's not too bad. and then they're kind of now rewatching it a little older, a little more mature. I didn't uh, yeah. didn't really hold up as well.
1: So I don't hold it against James Cameron for not being able to hold on to the franchise for four decades. Um, but I, I, I think uh, even with some rotten apples, rotten tomatoes, if you will, <laughs> T1 and T2, they weren't the five.
0: Well, I wish he gets the rights back in 2019 and stops making more Avatar movies. No, Cuz it sounds like happen. he wants to make like seven new Avatar movies yeah. and just makes better Terminator movies with that same emotional drive and and philosophical bent to it that I think the first two have. And I'm i would co- kind of go along the same lines as joel where you know this is kind of unfair to alex because he thought it was a different category of, of how to think about these mm-hmm. things you know on, on average and stuff but i would even say the first two were so strong mm. and are so influential and they're so different too like terminator one and two are, are kind of different approaches the first yeah. one it's like a, almost like a b slasher f- film, yeah. and that kind of reflects the budget there was six million dollars and yeah. a bunch of new directors and new uh actors and everything and the second one you get the budget. You have uh, James Cameron with a few more films under his belt, mm-hmm. and you get to do this larger uh, picture. It's the same thing with the other kind of example, which is Alien and Aliens. You know, James Cameron at the beginning, then really Scott. Like you draw, yeah, that's true. You draw yeah. it out and you do these larger stories, and they're different films. One is a thriller, and the other one's more of an action film. Mm-hmm. I think Terminator One and Two are so good, and Terminator Three is weird because it's almost like a comedy. There's so many jokes in Terminator Three that kind true. of play off of the first two. And so each one kind of gets lighter, and then Salvation is just a war movie. But Terminator: Genesis, it's almost like a Benny Hill comedy, in yep. a way. It's like just so many jokes back and forth, and the action is even though the effects look amazing, they're they, it just it's weird. like they're
1: winking at the the audience the whole time. Yeah. yeah, it's like, hey, remember this scene? Yeah, you did.
0: And so if James Cameron gets the rights back in twenty nineteen. I'd be really curious to see how what approach he would do with these films. And are there been any other James Cameron movies where he's done like lots of sequels to other than has he done anymore? I'm trying to. I think
1: Titanic <laughs> Two is still in the works, long in development. Yeah, but uh, is that is
0: the production still afloat?
1: I mean, nah. if, if James Cameron said, "What if they travel back in time but they land on the Titanic?" <laughs>
0: What if Arnold is on the iceberg and just punches it? Well, together? what if what if
1: it's John Connor's, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. like uh, you know, great 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 grandmother or something, and yeah. she gets on the uh, the boat that like makes it off the you know the boat, and then uh, so historically fight in the water
2: hasn't James Cameron? It, it, I, I've read that like he basically makes movies around like an interest he has, right? So he was really mm. into like deep sea exploration or whatever Mm -hmm. and so he made Titanic to justify uh, the abyss do it you're right in Avatar it was all about that motion capture technology right that he was really interested so basically Mm -hmm. seems got a studio to pay for advancing that Mm -hmm. technology what we need to do I guess as fans is come up with some reasonable you know interest for him thing that James Cameron can really sink his teeth into and somehow tie it back to Terminator.
1: So we need the cat equivalent of something shiny to distract him. Here, James. Here's Jim. For me, my interest with the nuclear side kind
0: of make a good Terminator movie that deals with these same things again. So I would be like, what is he... What is James Cameron's new nightmare about nuclear weapons be? Is it it a terrorist getting access to a nuclear weapon somehow? A a rogue state getting access to a nuclear weapon somehow? Maybe the next Skynet-type thing doesn't act, exist in the U.S. arsenal system. Maybe it goes to North Korea or somewhere else, and that starts the war there and, and disrupts civilization so that Skynet can just build. I don't know. I'm just trying to think of another way to get him, get them involved So I think
2: there. the trajectory is definitely more, even more towards the AI thing, because I think like to the, the technology of the time, a, yeah. not nuclear weapons like it was in the 80s. Well, as
1: we talked about this, I thought I, I my mind went to... 2001 a space odyssey mm-hmm. where you have artificial intelligence and they're in space i could very easily see cameron doing some kind of you know space mm-hmm. colony or something like well, that if they, or what if they happens... keep
0: pushing judgment day back further and further and skynet keeps like holding off and all that stuff eventually maybe it will be until skynet waits until we have moon bases and
1: <laughs> i mean who knows maybe he has a happy hour with elon musk they uh-huh. start talking about that first mars colony yep. and he's like well wait a minute
0: yeah, okay, that'd be interesting. Well, as we wait for James Cameron to get the rights back and to find
1: his next book, he should big call idea, us up. The three of us could just write sure. a screenplay, you know? James, just, if
0: you're listening. Uh, well, it's also, if he's listening, if he needs some inspiration for some next stuff, or if people here that are listening uh, after this inane conversation uh, about things that you, if you're interested in reading more, I recommend three things. One, a 2001 book by Jerome Shapiro called Atomic Bomb Cinema, which is a really interesting academic story look at bomb movies and, and apocalyptic movies, but he has two chapters on the Terminator movies about what he calls the coincidental bomb film. That's really interesting. If you want to look at academics, talk about uh, the, the Terminator movies. Uh, second, a book by Bruce Blair, uh, 1985, called Strategic Command and Control, or also another book he has called The Logic of Nuclear Accidents, it's called it's, – it's a great account of Cold War nuclear enterprises and how we got to the point where nuclear weapons can be fired so quickly uh, or an accident that could break out in case of a crisis to the U.S. and Russia, things that, the, that Skynet takes advantage of. The fact that these missiles are ready to go at any given moment, just all you, the computer needs to do is flip a switch as opposed to, say, the missiles being stored separately from the, from the warheads. Those are some of the things that he recommends, Bruce Blair, um, that might be the ultimate check against Skynet, keep the missiles separate from the, uh, the warheads themselves. Finally, Entertainment Weekly had a really good uh, oral history of the franchise on its 30th anniversary, some good behind-the-scenes stuff about James Cameron's fever dream, how O.J. Simpson or Lance Hendrickson was supposed to be the Terminator, Initially, um, just you know, how history turned out there. And now Arnold was supposed to actually be the good guy hmm. until he had this great uh, coffee shop interview kind of audition with, with James Cameron. And had some fun stuff. He's like, I've got this great idea of where I can move my eyes and then my head follows. That's really what a robot would be like.
1: We have to save humanity. Hmm. Life must go on. <laughs> that sounds perfectly human.
0: That sounds a little bit like Gorbachev, actually. Um, <laughs> but those are all good things to check out, too, if you are interested in more about this. Alex, thank you very much for coming. I know we asked a lot of you to watch all these films <laughs> uh, and to take some time on your Sunday to do all of this. We appreciate your uh, your wisdom and your guidance and your and your great thoughts on the on, the, on movies. And
2: yeah, I'm yeah, I appreciate uh, you guys inviting me on this. It was a lot of fun. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for next films that we should cover or pop culture or just basically want to tell us what we got wrong uh, nuclear-wise or time travel-wise, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast, on Twitter at nuclearpodcast, and email supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed the program, we really would appreciate it if you would consider subscribing on iTunes or Google Play, music, wherever you listen to it, and leaving a review. It's a great way to grow the audience, and we want to hear uh, what you've been thinking. Until next time, uh, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Joel. And Alex. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.